A wise man builds his life on Jesus' instructions, like a house built on a solid foundation. By tuning in today, you are pouring into your life. This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. Yernal the Turtle by Dr. Seuss. Maybe one of the greatest leadership texts ever written. <laughs> On the faraway island of Salamisand, Yertel the turtle was king of the pond. A nice little pond. It was clean. It was neat. The water was warm and there was plenty to eat. The turtles had everything turtles might need and they were all happy, quite happy indeed. Well, they were. Until Yertel, king of them all, decided the kingdom he ruled was too small. My Mimi would read me this book all the time. Uh, and if you don't know how the story progresses, Yertle decides that he doesn't see enough. And he wants to see more. And so he calls turtles over and he climbs up on their backs. And he needs more turtles to come over so he can see trees and he can see mules. And he can see more because he's the king of all that he sees. The problem is the stack's getting pretty high. And one poor turtle on the bottom named Mac just can't take it anymore. And he's asking for a little bit of a reprieve. Hush your mouth, howled the mighty yurtle. You've got no right to talk to the world's highest turtle. I rule over clouds, over land, over sea. There's nothing, no nothing that's higher than me. Well... Turtle on the bottom, Max, decided he's had enough. And he had. That plain little turtle got a little bit mad, and that plain little Mac did a little thing. He burped, and the burp shook the throne of the king. And ultimately, Yertle the turtle, the king of the turtles, falls down into the mud. You can read about the fall of empires in Dr. Seuss. Did you know that? You can see it on the news. And we've been learning about it in our Bibles. We've been working through the book of Revelation together. And at its core is the vision of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords reestablishing what is right and what is good. Which means there's some yurtles on some turtles that are going to have to fall down. And ultimately they do. And we get to this climactic moment in Revelation 17 and 18 that we're going to look at today. When all that is evil and all that is wrong, John zeroes us in nice and close, nice and tight. He's been kind of pulling us back and then moving us forward and pulling us back and moving us forward. And now he's going to bring that target and that telescope real tight in on one epicenter. That is Babylon the Great. Within this two chapters, we get the opportunity to unpack and discern and see what are the marks of empire, evil empire, that John wants us to understand? And within that, he gives us an admonition, our responsibility within 
Because empires rise and empires fall. So if you would please, uh, Revelation 17 and 18 is where we're going to be. Uh, take out a set of notes that you received when you walked in. The mark of seven empires. And I am going to work us through these two chapters. And I want you to place yourself in the early church. Maybe one of the churches that John wrote about. You're in Ephesus or Laodicea. You're in Smyrna. And you're hearing this letter for the first time. It's an imaginative experience, a creative experience. This is the graphic novel of the day. This is the political cartoon of the day. So let it take your imagination on a roller coaster ride and engage it. Imagine these scenes and these visions. Because John's going to pull us in tight to what he calls the great prostitute, Babylon the Great. Then he's going to write a funeral dirge of her demise. I'm going to read straight through 17 and 18. Let the spirit and the angels work you through it with me. And then we'll make some observations together. Revelation 17. You can close your eyes, but only if you're able to wake them, open them up afterwards. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, they'll marvel at the beast, because it was, is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other is yet to come. When he does come, he must remain only for a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Ten horns that you saw are ten kings who've not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for an hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind. They hand over their power and their authority to the beast. They'll make war on the lamb, 
and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The ten horns that you saw, there the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked, devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that they saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. All nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back, as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a little measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart, she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. In mourning, I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine. And she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. The kings of the earth, who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in the fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver, there's jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood. All kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, there's fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. All your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her, they'll stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine purple, scarlet, 
adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. In a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. All the shipmasters, the seafaring men, sailors, all those who trade in on the sea, they stood far off and carried out, cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, and they wept, and they mourned, crying out, Alas, alas for the great city, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she's been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. A craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. The sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. The light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Maybe you prefer Yertle the turtle, right? But the message is the same. Each passage, John has brought us closer and closer till we get to this epicenter where we're looking not just at the empire, but the city at the center of the empire. And he helps us understand the marks, what distinguishes this system of evil. It's the point in the movie where the bad guy finally falls. You didn't think it would happen, but we finally reached that place where evil is brought to its doom. Let me share with you what I think are marks of an empire that John wants us to be able to recognize. The early church needed to see them, that they could have hope and maneuver their culture with wisdom. We too need to learn how to maneuver our culture with wisdom. The first mark of an empire is this, evil systems. Evil systems. Let's write it down together in your notes. Verse 2, we're told that Babylon the Great is seated upon many waters, like a network of rivers all feeding in to this city core. And later we're told that those waters are actually people, many languages and tongues. This support system, uh, uh, this network of extortion and slavery that lets the empire thrive. These are systems that put something over our mandate of loving God and loving others. That's what we do, right? That's our responsibility. Love God and love others. There are evil systems always at play that tempt us to put something over that priority. Let me give you an example. Tribalism or nationalism, where we elevate our people group over all other people groups. These are my people. 
And to them you give your allegiance, and to them you give your time. 1994 in Rwanda, the Hutu decide that they need to exterminate the Tutsi because their tribe is over that tribe. Nazi Germany, the Aryan race must take its place over the Jews, our people, over that people. And see, that's easy. I mean, anyone who knows a little bit of history can go through and just pick genocide after genocide, tribal war after tribal war, my team over that team, my nation over that nation. Our challenge is doing what John was admonishing them to do. God is the God of all people and all nations, all tribes, all tongues. King of kings, Lord of lords. Where am I tempted to? How do I pick my people and forsake and forget other peoples? In fact, judge other peoples. God is the God who loves all. And we are called to love all. Tribalism, nationalism. Here's another one, materialism. Materialism. Send us your stuff. Consuming products and hoarding happiness. What's the newest thing? What's the shiniest thing? Christmas is right around the corner. I'm sure all the lists have started to come out, right? Hottest gifts for the year. Hottest gifts for him. Hottest gifts for her. Top toys. This is what you need so that Christmas can be everything that Christmas is going to be. This is where we elevate stuff over the priority of loving God and loving others. We're familiar with the first two. The third one is going to poke you a little bit. But bear with me, okay? Priority is loving God and loving others, right? And what about capitalism? At its core, what's capitalism? What's the focus? What's the priority? Money, right? You need money to make everything better. Come to America and get money. Money will make it better. Jesus said quite explicitly, you can't serve God and serve money. Love the one, hate the other. You need to be mindful of while we live in a culture where capitalism is pervasive. How does a Christian deftly maneuver the divine mandate to love God and love others and not succumb to the pursuit of money will make it better? Money makes it right. Jesus was a pauper. He did pretty well. There are lots of evil systems, and, but those are some ideas of what we might be subjected to. You go through 17 and 18 and, and in Revelation, and John is very clear, painting the picture of these economic systems, philosophical systems and relationships that have elevated the great city, the empire that is Babylon. Here's another mark of empires. They make divine promises. They make divine promises. Chapter 18, verse 7, she says, I'm a queen. I'll never be a widow. I'm not going to mourn. I'm here forever. I'll take care of you. 
I'll offer you provision. I'll offer you protection. I'll offer you pleasure. Whatever you need, you hook up with me and you'll be in good hands. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Only God can make those proclamations. So, so John paints the prostitute as a bit of a foil and a parody to compare with Christ's bride and Christ himself. The one who was and is not and is about to be. He's making fun of the empire. It's really important that you learn to listen for humility in your leaders. You need to be weary of a leader who constantly talks about how great they are and how much you need them to fix your future, how much you need them to secure your safety and protection. Only God can make those promises and come good on them. They make divine promises. They persecute God's people. Persecute God's people. Seventeen six and eighteen twenty four. The Babylon the Great has gotten drunk on the blood of God's saints, which is to be expected because a faithful witness only worships Jesus, proclaims and lives out Jesus' kingdom, and suffers the consequences of that commitment. If you have an empire that sets itself up as a divine seat of authority, and you have followers of Jesus who only follow Jesus, that's not going to go well for God's people in the temporal state. And so we are reminded, and John writes to remind and to admonish, you need to be faithful, but you will be persecuted. In the United States and America, we are not persecuted. We do not suffer persecution. We have no idea what persecution is, okay? We have no clue. Talk to people who live abroad, who have lived abroad. Now, that's not to say that in the United States, that might not happen, okay? That's the natural trajectory for any country, anyone who reads history. Democracies last about 200 years. After that, things tank quickly. Okay? And so you could see, we could see, our children could see in their lifetime if certain admonitions don't take place and certain adjustments don't take place. If our nation continues on its current trajectory, then there will become a point, a threshold point, where the church experiences actual persecution. Our brothers and sisters endure that all the time. Please do not insult them by thinking you're persecuted. Okay? It goes back to what we read in chapter 11, the witnesses. And how the world is ecstatic and cheers when the voice of the witnesses are silenced because now they don't feel convicted about their sin and they can go about their debauchery. Ultimately, another mark is the empire implodes. It implodes. It's a system of take. It's a system of take that creates a vacuum. A vacuum with so much internal corruption and poison and cancer that God uses the internal corruption to ultimately crush it. 
talked about, talked about this relationship between the city, the prostitute, and all these kings and provinces of authority and their the immoral relationship back and forth, this give and take, till ultimately the city that keeps taking and taking and taking and taking, these all rise up against and crush and the whole thing implodes on itself. Last week we learned about drinking the cup of God's wrath which is God letting us experience the consequences of our choices. God doesn't hate you. God just lets you experience the life you picked. That's all. That's all. God lets you experience the life that you've picked. So a nation where God is not the God of that nation will experience a future without that God. That's all. That's all. Consequences. So you can read about in countries, coups here and revolts there. Yeah. Yeah. Riots. Yeah. It implodes. It implodes. Another mark of empire is they reduce bodies to commodities. They reduce bodies to commodities. They reduce bodies to commodities. Um, if you can remember in chapter 18, he goes through this long list. There's gold and there's silver and there's, there's cinnamon and there's frankincense. And there's commentary, Metzger's commentary, which I've read from before. Here's just a paragraph to give us a little bit of, of, of what's going on here. If John had spent any time at all in Ephesus, which is one of the letters he writes to, he would have indeed have seen massive amounts of the cargoes he lists moving towards the docks at the seaport to be loaded onto ships heading west toward Italy. Of course, Rome's buyers could snatch up all the luxury goods offered on the market. Cinnamon from far off Sri Lanka, ivory from Africa, pearls from India, marble from Asia Minor, Greece and North Africa. Massive amounts of staples were also shipped off to Rome, such as grain to supply the bread that was distributed freely to about 200,000 families, a perk of living in the capital city of the world empire. And Rome would get its grain at set amounts, at set prices, no matter what it meant for access to grain in the provinces. He lists these commodities that, that, that flow upon the sea that bring imports from all over the world to feed the luxurious desires, the malls and the markets and the shops of Rome. And at the end, he hits it with a big exclamation point. Oh, in bodies, human souls. It's not even the word for slave. It's the word body. He's like, this is how Rome treats it. We're not humans. We're just bodies. We're just commodities. In Rome, at the height of its empire, one third of the population were slaves. One in every three was a slave in Rome. In the empire as a whole, 25% of people were slaves. Bodies just become commodities. Which means you get to pick which bodies are more valuable than other bodies? And to the lesser bodies, the cheaper bodies, you can discard and remove those bodies because they're not worth as much. Each life has a value. 
This is what made Jesus so attractive to his followers because it wasn't about a Greek or a Gentile or a male or a female or slave or free. I'm created in the image of God. I have worth. I have value. Children have worth. Women have value. And yet you live in an age where there's abortion on demand, sex trafficking in sweatshops. Employers abuse employees by saying, if you don't work my hours at my fees, I'll find somebody else who will. Right? Because the dollar is worth more than the person. So be aware of an empire where bodies just become commodities. It will eventually implode on itself. Another mark of empire, John shows us, is how it expands by military force. It expands by military force. The prostitute, Babylon the Great, rides upon the beast that was described to us in chapter 13. And I know that was two months ago. And you can go back and catch up. But that beast is the amalgamation of all these armies and, and, and power structures and geopolitical empires that had risen up. Medes and Persians and Babylonians, now the Romans. These armies marching through to leverage their will and take what they want and repress and oppress anyone who would oppose them. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler. Intimidating to get whatever they want. Might makes it right. Don't push my buttons or I will push the button. And you just won't exist anymore. Yet we are called to be blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peace takers. Are you able to? Yeah, I'll do it anyways. Are you able to watch some of the primetime television shows that glamorize the American military agenda? But can you do it with a divine perspective? Meaning, if you live in your little village in the Middle East and you're doing your thing, and all of a sudden, these outsiders come in with their big guns and dominate and kill everybody in the town. Can you put yourself in the feelings of that little town? Or are you just, God bless America? Do you feel the tension? Do you know what I'm saying? Careful, might doesn't make it right. I get that we have bigger guns. That doesn't mean we get to decide what's right and what's wrong. Lastly, they seduce with physical pleasure. They seduce with physical pleasure. They use physical pleasure to draw in its tentacles. 
to influence, to manipulate, to maneuver. Called a prostitute, not a prostitute as in one who's a victim of the sex trafficking industry, who has no choice, who she wants out and she can't get out. This is a prostitute by choice. She uses sex to get her way. She sells her body to get what she wants. And so the tension between the prostitute and those who dwell on earth, the prostitute and the kings, the prostitute and the sailors and the merchants, the manipulation using power and sex and money to get, to gather, numbing others, numbing people. This is in direct contrast to the next section where we see the marriage of Jesus and his people, covenant, sacrificial love, commitment. Not, I will use you as long as it's good for me. You can use me as long as it's good for you. Seven marks, vampires. All of this empowered by a hidden dragon hunting after the lamb. The power behind, the spiritual, sinister force, leveraging, moving, maneuvering. This is the closest that John ever gets in the book to pointing his finger right at Rome without coming out and saying it. And I think even as I was reading through it, it was pretty explicit, wasn't it? He was not pulling his punches. Though she sits upon the seven hills, the city of Rome sat upon seven hills. He goes through their history of kings. There were five kings who were gone and then there's one who is and another one who's gonna be a king for a little time and then the prophecy that maybe Nero was gonna come back, that whole section there. He just walked through the political history of Rome. That's not to say this is code for Rome. He's just saying, hey, you people need to be able to put your glasses on and see what you're seeing and see what's in front of you. Because the invitation to us is, take the book of Revelation, put the glasses on, what do you see in front of you? All of that really to get us to one verse. That's in chapter 18, verse four. Chapter 18, verse four. As Lola tracks it down, let me read it for you so you can have it. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, this is the voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Come out of her. Do not be complicit and the wares and the agendas and the systems of the empire, or you will be complicit in her sins and her plagues as well. What does that mean for a follower of Jesus who is always living in and surrounded by evil empires? Hear me. I'm not anti the United States of America. I'm not. This is the country where God has placed me by his sovereignty. But if I have a responsibility to God's word and a responsibility to my king, I need to put the lenses on and I need to see things. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ in an environment where I know there's a dragon behind the scenes empowering evil, that there are systems at play, that there is seduction, and the voice of the Spirit says, you come out of that, do not get complicit in what's going on. 
You love God and you love others. So really, I have more questions than I do answers. Clearly, I need to beware of Babylon's. I need to beware. There was a Babylon and there was a, a Persia. There was a Rome. There was a Rome. I mean, he's writing at the high day of the Roman Empire. And he's just, he, in his eyes, it's all laid waste, man. There's jackals and hyenas running through the city. There's, I mean, there's nothing anywhere. People are gone. It's desolate. It's kind of like some of those apocalypse movies that you've seen, right, where they show you Times Square and there's just dust balls rolling through. And you're like, that's so weird. In John's mind, it's real. It's real. Empires fall. So I need to beware of Babylon. And that also means to be a student of history and be a little cynical, a little cynical, when I listen to the news, any news, when a politician speaks, just a little cynical, remembering who my king is, who my Lord is, because power and sex and money are big motivators. They really are. And the church has been complicit. I can take you to epics and eras and ages of church history where we hopped in bed with the prostitute because power and sex and money are tremendous motivators. I was talking to my neighbor who comes from Hungary and he was talking about how the, 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 the country that was moving from socialism has moved now into full-blown communism in Hungary. I says, how's the church? He says, it's terrible. It's in bed with the government. The church, which is why he has some real issues. He's like, I don't want to offend you. He says, you're not going to offend me. Tell me the truth. So I need to beware. Here's a, here's, a, here's a question. Career options. It was understood in the early days of the church. There were just some careers Christ followers would not chase after, Christ followers would not pursue. There's some jobs Christians don't do. Because our priority is loving God and loving others. And we don't want to be complicit with the empire. So I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do that. I'm okay losing my job as I stand up for my values of loving God and loving others. I need to ask myself, my current profession, do I empower evil systems? Am I empowering a system of seduction? If I work in retail, what am I selling? How am I leveraging? Am I a part of leveraging power and sex and money to seduce people? Am I leading people to spend money they don't have? I don't know. I don't know. I'm just asking the questions. It means thinking through how I spend money. Does my budget reflect Jesus and his kingdom or does my budget reflect the beast and the empire? Is loving God and loving others my priority? Does my budget express, does it reflect that? Or am I a taker? We're givers, aren't we? We are givers. It's amazed at the ongoing generosity of our fellowship to give and to give and to give. Give time and give resources. This is an example of the meal bags that get prepped for people 
uh, who are in need, need happens. And if you take out your notes, take out your notes. If you tear off that connection card on the, on the back, there's like this little uh, a menu of hope resources. If you were to know someone who needed some help throughout the course of the week, or maybe you do, and you were to fill out and check that box, what does that mean? Need food. Um, our team preps, and they were restocking just a few days ago because we'd gone through all the bags. Um, what, what, what people get uh, is two bags. They come in sets, and these are, you know, three, four days worth of food, depending on how many people are in the family. And, and it comes with it meal ideas based on the food that's in here. Okay, so how to prep, you know, this meal and this meal and this meal. This is why we don't just say, hey, bring us some groceries. Bring us some groceries. We're very, we try to be very intentional, which is why last week the blue bags had tags with them. We need green beans. We need stuffing mix because they are prepped there, there's uh, toiletry resources, there's, there's cleaning resources, okay? And all of this comes together. And so maybe you know someone, you know, we had someone came and picked up a, a set last week because they bumped into someone at work having a real hard time. That's why it's here. That's why it's here, okay? Moving into a season where we might be putting a lot of bags a whole lot. And you guys will know, you see the blue bags with the cards, grab it, bring them back next week so we can restock and give more. That's why it's here. Because we're givers, we're not takers. The umpire takes. Jesus gives. Jesus gives. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying if you, you know, you're walking through Walmart and you're like, you know, the coupon queen and, you know, Walmart pays you to take their stuff because you've, you know, stacked up the coupons. I know some of you are able to do that and that's amazing. You're on TV shows about couponing, and you can get 500 boxes of toothpaste. Hey, if you want to drop off toothpaste, that's awesome, because we'll give it away. If you can get all, that's awesome. You bring it in, and we'll give it away. But this is why we are so intentional with what we request and why we request it. But I need to think about, how do I spend my money? How do I spend my money? Don't take part in her sins. That's something I have no answers. No, I'm happy to sit with you as you wrestle with some of those questions. Maybe it's career moves. Maybe it's financial questions, relationship questions. I don't know. I'm happy to sit with you and and let's, let's talk about that. But to the person who's living in persecution, the pastor was killed, leadership's incarcerated, family members have scattered, you haven't seen mom in 20 years because she was taken to slavery and shipped off to Rome. The words of 17 and 18, it's not ominous for you. It's hope that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to make this right. Yodel the Turtle by Dr. Seuss. And Yodel the Turtle, the king of the trees, the king of the air and the birds and the bees, the king of a house and a cow and a mule. Well, that was the end of the turtle king's rule. For Yertle the turtle of all of Salamisand fell off his high throne and fell plunk in the pond. And today the great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. And the turtles, of course, well, all the turtles are free as turtles and maybe all creatures should be, right?
Jesus said there are two ways to build your life. A wise man builds his life on God's instructions, like a house on a strong foundation. For more teaching from this ministry, go to whoishouseontherock.com. If you don't have a church, please consider being our guest on a Sunday morning. Again, visit whoishouseontherock.com for more information.